Hello, and welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. This is our 12th. No frills, no bells, no whistles. I do this all on my iPod Nano commentary. Concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, the failure of animal welfare regulation, veganism as the moral baseline of the animal rights movement, and the importance of the principle of ahimsa or nonviolence in all of our advocacy efforts. The topic of this commentary is going to be our virtual billboard campaign, The World is Vegan, If You Want It. But before I get to that, I want to tell you all about the newest addition to our non-human family. This past week, Anna and I adopted Christine, a nine-year-old retriever. Uh, we adopted her from one of the local shelters. Let me say that one animal in a shelter is one animal too many. But as a result of the economic situation, many people are losing their homes, and as a result, many non-humans are ending up in shelters. So although there's always a need for adoption, that need is particularly acute now. So please, if you can adopt someone, adopt someone. It does not matter whether you adopt a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a fish, a mouse, a, a gerbil. It doesn't matter. There are many, many animals who need homes Please, open your heart, open your home. These animals are in the mess they are in because of us. We have a responsibility to do something about that, and one of the best things that we can do is to offer them a home. So please, if you can adopt an animal, please adopt an animal. Christine, being a large nine-year-old dog was particularly at risk, which is why we adopted her. Many people don't like to adopt older dogs, particularly older, larger dogs, because they're concerned that they won't live very long, and then they'll face the tragedy of losing them uh, in, a, in a fairly short period of time. And uh, so we took Christine precisely for that reason, because she was at risk. And um, I want to tell you this. Yes, she's nine, and that's, that's on a bit for a large dog, but... She's just started on her vegan diet. And I can tell you from experience that uh, we've had a number of dogs over the years who have had health problems. We've adopted them because they've had health problems and because they were going to be killed if we didn't adopt them. And they have prospered on their vegan diets. As a matter of fact, our dog Simon, when we, we got Simon from the same shelter uh, that we adopted uh, Christine from, and he was a stray, so nobody knew what his uh, what his age was, but because he was blind and had some other health problems, we we took him to several vets when we first adopted him, and we had uh, estimates of his age ranging from ten to twelve, and we were told by all of the vets that with some conscientious loving care, Simon would probably enjoy several years of additional life. Well, he enjoyed nine years of additional life, and when he died last January. He was at least 19, if you take 10 as the age when we adopted him, or 21, if you take 12 as the age when we adopted him. And he enjoyed his vegan food right up until the very day that he died. So uh, we've got Christine on her vegan diet now, and uh, I think uh, Anna and I are both believers that with lots of love and vegan food, you can... Uh, you can extend life a great deal. And so my bet is that Christine's going to be with us for many, many years to come, and she's a lovely animal. Uh, and in any event, please, I want to repeat the message. If you can adopt an animal, 
please adopt someone. does not matter who you adopt. Just open your heart, open your home, give someone a place. Okay, let's talk about the world is vegan if you want it. At the height of the Vietnam War, a, uh, a very tumultuous time in the United States, and in Vietnam for that matter, in 1969 at Christmas time, John Lennon and Yoko Ono put up a billboard in Times Square in New York City. And the billboard said, War is over if you want it. Happy Christmas from John and Yoko. And I remember, I was in high school at the time, and I remember going into the city with a group of my friends to see the billboard. And we were in Times Square with many, many other people completely clogging up the Times Square area, looking at this billboard. It was remarkable. And I think that, that we all understood it in one sense, but we all interpreted it in our own different ways. And, and the way I saw that message was as a message of both empowerment and responsibility. That is... I interpreted it as John and Yoko saying, you can't wait for the government to end the war because the government and the corporations that support the government, they all profit from war. They're not going to end it. If you want it to end, it will end. But you, we, must act collectively, communally, and bring this thing to an end. And we can do it if we really want to. If we really want it, if it's not just some sort of aspiration or vague hope, if it's something we really want, we are empowered to bring an end to this war. We can demand an end to this war. We can act collectively to demand an end to this war. And it was also, at least as far as I understood it, a message of responsibility. That because we had that power, we also had that responsibility because it was an unjust war, it was terrible violence, and we had a responsibility to bring it to an end. Last week, last Tuesday morning, I was getting ready to go to a meeting uh, at the university that was going to last all day. And I was thinking, as I was getting ready about the fact that it was 40 years ago that John and Yoko put that billboard up in Times Square. And I was thinking, well, you know, it's really interesting that that message, that message, the message of empowerment and responsibility, is relevant to just about every social problem we're facing, and it's really relevant to the animal movement. That's what we need in the animal movement. We need a message of empowerment and responsibility. And I was also thinking that we now have technological means of disseminating messages that we never dreamed of in 1969. So you could put a billboard up in 1969 and it could get a lot of media coverage, but you can still get greater dissemination, faster dissemination, through the internet than you could through any media that existed in 1969. So I thought, well, it would be interesting 
to see how people react to the suggestion that we have a virtual billboard campaign in cyberspace promoting the message the world is vegan if you want it as a message of empowerment and as a message of responsibility and so I I did a blog essay before leaving for school and I then left went to my meeting came back and I had over 300 messages from people. And almost all of them were very enthusiastic about this idea. Uh, there were a few people who were naysayers, but as I have learned, you see, there are, there, there, there are some people out there, they tend, to, they tend to be pretty much the same people. It doesn't really matter what I say. If I say X one week, they disagree with that. If I say not X the next week, they disagree with that. It, it doesn't matter what I say. But um, the overwhelming number of people who responded thought this was a great idea. Indeed, several created various banners and designs that could be used, that could be attached to blog sites, uh, that could be attached to email signatures, etc., and I was very excited about this because I, I, I didn't expect that sort of reaction. And indeed, you can go to the links page at abolitionistapproach.com and you can uh, find some of the banners that we've collected. Uh, they're there now. Uh, you can also go to theworldisvegan.com and you can, uh, you can, that will take you to the links page. We would like to get more banner designs. Uh, and we would particularly like to get uh, some that are not in English. We're seeing a lot in foreign languages. Um, and we're trying to get people to send them to us uh, through the contact page at abolitionistapproach.com so that we can collect them all so that people will have one place to go to sort of get these, these banner designs and, uh, and, and use them. But in any event, so there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about the, the World is Vegan If You Want It virtual billboard campaign. The World is Vegan If You Want It is a message of empowerment and personal responsibility. Unfortunately, the welfareist approach is very disempowering and negative and does not focus on personal responsibility. Indeed, it reflects what sociologist Roger Yates calls a poverty of ambition. The welfareist approach focuses on institutional users and says that the solution is to negotiate with those institutional users so that we torture animals less. That that's the best that we can do for animals, is we can torture them less. That's a pretty impoverished view of the situation. That's a pretty disempowering view of the situation. The welfareist approach does not in any way focus on our ability to change things. Indeed, it focuses attention away from us. It makes the institutional users, the enemy, as it were, when, in fact, we are the ones responsible for animal exploitation because we are the people who demand the products that the institutional users supply. So, the welfareist approach does not focus on our own personal responsibility and does not focus on our empowerment, our ability to change things. If we really want to change things, we can change things. This is not the message of the welfareist movement. This is the message of the abolitionist movement, and it's a message which is embodied in the slogan, the world is vegan if you want it. Animal welfare 
is a failure. It is a complete failure. We have had it for more than 200 years now. We're exploiting more animals now in more horrific ways than at any time in human history. Animal welfare doesn't work. If you look at animal welfare reform, including some of the recent reforms, you see it fits the paradigm that I've been describing now for about 20 years. That is, the only time that animal welfare reforms are accepted is when they make animal use more economically efficient, when they increase production efficiency. If you want proof of that, look at the history of animal welfare reform. Look at the current campaigns that are being promoted by the large welfarist organizations. Look at the campaign for controlled atmosphere killing of poultry. Look at the campaign focused on the gestation crate or the veal crate. These are all campaigns that focus on the economic efficiency of alternatives to various forms of intensive agriculture. Remember, intensive agriculture is a phenomenon that started in the 1950s, basically. And it's only now that agricultural economists are beginning to see that some of the practices of intensive agriculture are economically inefficient. And they're identifying certain things that are not working and certain ways that production efficiency can be increased. They're doing the work of identifying what some animal advocates call the low-hanging fruit that then become the targets of welfareist campaigns. These things are going to change anyway. These practices are going to change anyway. They're economically inefficient. And the fact of their economic efficiency is discussed explicitly in the literature that's produced by these large animal welfare groups. Go and read it. Many of these documents are available on our website, abolitionistapproach.com. But read what the animal welfare organizations have to say. Animal welfare doesn't work. It just makes animal use more efficient. It focuses on supply and doesn't focus on the fact that nothing's going to change until we change people's thinking about animal use and the demand structure changes. Animal welfare makes people feel more comfortable about animal exploitation. And I find it puzzling that some of the welfareists say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me ask you this. If animal welfare reform doesn't make people feel more comfortable about animal exploitation, can someone please explain to me why all of these animal welfare groups are promoting various labels like certified humane raised and handled and freedom food and, and, and animal compassionate and all of these labels that are being sold to various producers to put on their products. What is the purpose? If, if the animal welfare organizations weren't aware that these reforms make people feel more comfortable about animal exploitation, they would not be putting money into these campaigns to support these labels. They recognize that welfare reform makes people feel more comfortable about animal use. So I find it puzzling and disingenuous at best for animal welfare advocates to say, well, how do you know it's making people feel more comfortable? Perhaps you should ask the animal welfare organizations who are promoting these humane labels why they're doing it if they don't agree that that's exactly the effect that it's having. 
And, you know, not only is the welfareist message a defeatist negative message, but it's also perverse in the sense that, you know, if you think about the peace movement, I was discussing a couple of days ago with someone who was also around during the Vietnam time, we were talking about the peace movement and how odd it would have been if people within the peace movement took the position that the way to get to peace was to more humanely kill the Vietnamese or the Cambodians or whoever we were killing at the time, uh, that that was the way to get to peace, that we should humanely kill them. What a strange position that would have been to take. Indeed, uh, I think it would have have been uh, uh, rejected outright. But yet, that is the position of the welfareist movement. Let's torture them a little less. That's the solution to the problem. Well, I suggest that just as humane killing of the enemy is a rather bizarre approach for a peace movement, torturing animal victims a little bit less is a rather bizarre strategy for trying to do something to end or to significantly reduce animal exploitation. So what is the world is vegan if you want it campaign about? Well, its purpose is to remind us that veganism is our choice. We have the ability to say no to violence. We have the ability affirm the personhood of animals. We have the ability to reject the status of animals as chattel property. We have the ability to say no to speciesism. We have the ability to solve the problem of exploitation in the only way it can be solved, by abolishing the demand for animal products. And because we have the ability to do these things, We have the responsibility to do these things. The world is vegan if you want it is a message of empowerment and it's a message of responsibility. Now, some people say, well, even if you were to significantly reduce the demand for animal products, that wouldn't help because the government would step in and would promote the continuation of the consumption of animal products. That comment betrays a woeful ignorance of simple, not even advanced, but simple economics. Institutional users, people who are producing animal products, are capitalists. They're putting their money where they think they can get the best return. If demand changes and people start demanding bananas more than they demand beef, then Those people will shift their resources into banana production and away from beef production. If we had, if we spoke with one unified voice, imagine what would would happen if the animal movement all spoke with one unified voice. Veganism. Let's stop using animals. The issue is not treatment, the issue is use. If we spoke with one voice, if we put all of the resources 
all of the talent. There's a lot of talent in the animal movement. If we put all that talent and all the financial resources, because there are considerable financial resources as well, if we put all of those resources, all of that talent, into a unified campaign demanding justice for animals, the cessation of animal use, veganism, we wouldn't get veganism overnight. Of course not. But we would, overnight, start shifting the paradigm in a very, very serious way. And so... The idea, I mean, if, if, if demand changed, the idea that the government is going to step in and say, oh no, you know, we're going to continue to encourage the consumption of animal products. I mean, that would happen in, in, in certain respects, but it would be limited and it would diminish as the demand for the cessation of animal exploitation increased because the people who are providing the products would put their money elsewhere. They're indifferent. These people don't have a vested interest in exploiting animals. They have a vested interest in making money. If the demand structure changed, the corporate incentives would change, and the government responses would change, because the government responses are very much linked to the corporate incentives. All right, now... Let's talk about some practical aspects of the, the campaign, The World is Vegan If You Want It. I'm identifying four components of what I see as this, uh, this campaign. There may be more. These are just four that occur to me, and maybe more will occur to you. And if so, that's great. The first component is focusing on the you in the world is vegan if you want it. Focus on you. You've got to become a vegan. If you're concerned about animals and you're eating them, wearing them, or otherwise consuming them, you are suffering from moral schizophrenia. If we want this to end, it's got to start with us. We've got to become the change we want the world to see, each of us. And that means each of us goes vegan. If you're an abolitionist, or you claim to be an abolitionist, and you are eating, wearing, or consuming animal products, it's as if you were a slave owner in the 19th century who claimed to support the abolition of slavery, but who owned slaves. Very confusing situation. Very uh, Moral schizophrenia. Veganism is applying the principle of abolition to your individual life. We have got to become the change we want the world to see. So if we want a vegan world, we have to be vegan. It's not enough to say, well, it would be nice if the world were vegan, or I'd become a vegan if other people became vegan. It doesn't matter what other people do. And from this perspective, it matters what we as individuals do. So the first step is to recognize that veganism is not an option. It's a necessity if we take animal interests seriously and if we want to see the abolition of animal exploitation. The second component 
is to recognize that veganism is the moral baseline of the animal rights movement. It's not the last step, as some would have us believe. It's really, in many ways, the first step in the movement toward abolition. One of the things that concerns me, and it concerns me terribly, is that there is a tremendous amount of vegan bashing that goes on within the animal movement. There are so-called leaders of the animal movement who characterize veganism as fanatical. There are so-called leaders of the animal movement who do not miss an opportunity to criticize veganism and criticize vegans. You know, one of the more distressing things I've seen recently is my colleague, Professor Gary Steiner, who teaches at Bucknell University, had an editorial in the New York Times in which he promoted veganism. Now, you would have thought that that would have made vegan advocates happy, and it made many of us very happy. But the new welfareists were very unhappy with it. Indeed, some of them, some of the very same people who praise slaughterhouse designers, who praise people who sell happy meat and other happy animal products, came out and criticized Gary Steiner for his editorial on veganism. I found that very distressing. Many of the new welfareists call veganism, or call vegans, absolutists. Now that's just plain speciesism, and we can see why that's the case. Imagine if we were talking about rape, or child molestation, or something like that. And someone took a position that there should be no rape, or there should be no child molestation, that it shouldn't be a question of humane rape or humane child molestation. There should be no rape, no child molestation. Imagine what would happen if someone criticized such a person and said, well, you're just being an absolutist. We would think that that's an, an absolutely horrible position to take. Well, why is it not an equally unacceptable position to take when we're talking about animals, when we say there should be no animal exploitation? We shouldn't be using animals. We shouldn't be eating animals. We shouldn't be wearing animals. We shouldn't be consuming animals. Why is that absolutist? Or why is it objectionably absolutist in a way that it would not be objectionable if we were talking about rape or child molestation? One of the answers that I've gotten to that question when I ask it is, is people say, well, but it's accepted. Everybody knows that rape is wrong, and, 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 but yet, you know, the problem is with, with animal exploitation, uh, everybody thinks it's okay. So they're re these are really different. Well, I have news for you. First of all, I don't think that that argument works, but as an empirical matter, the premise is wrong. Rape goes on all the time. Violence against women is omnipresent in this society and just about every other society. Violence against children is omnipresent in this society and just about every other society. So the notion that rape or child molestation are somehow aberrations is, as an empirical matter, simply false. 
Not that it would make a difference because it, it really wouldn't matter. If animal exploitation is wrong, we ought to say that it's wrong. And to characterize people who take the position that we ought not to be exploiting animals, to characterize them as absolutists in a pejorative way, is to be simply speciesist. We would never apply that reasoning where humans are concerned, but it's okay where non-humans are concerned. That's what speciesism is, and it's a perfect example. The third point, which is related to the second point, is we've got to change the focus away from the treatment of animals to the basic issue of use. As long as we focus on treatment, then the goal is let's make treatment more humane. Now we know that can't work because of the property status of animals. That's not gonna that, that's not that's not a solution. But not only is it not as a practical matter not a solution, it misses the fundamental moral point, and that is we've got no moral justification for using animals, however humanely we treat them. And we need to be open about that position. We need to present that position to people. And you know what? I'm tired of hearing that people can't understand this and people can't understand that. It's just wonderful how so many animal people just think that they're incredibly brilliant and the rest of the world is just so incredibly stupid. That's elitism. People are a lot smarter than many animal welfare people give them a credit for being. They are capable of understanding the arguments. If the arguments are made clearly and coherently, people will understand them. And one of the things we really need to do is make clear the argument that we've got no moral justification for using animals. We've got to shift the discussion away from treatment and toward use. We've got to get people thinking differently because as long as they're thinking about the issue in terms of treatment, then they're always going to be focused on making treatment more humane they're always going to be told by these large animal welfare organizations that these organizations are making treatment more humane, when in fact what's happening is little or nothing. And people are going to feel better about consuming animals because they're going to think the fundamental issue is the issue of treatment. It's not. The fundamental moral issue is the issue of use. The reason why we think that the issue is one of treatment is because many people have bought into the welfareist notion that animals don't care that we use them, they only care about how we use them. That killing them is not per se imposing a harm on them. We harm them when we make them suffer, but as long as we don't make them suffer, killing them is not imposing a harm on them. I would suggest that the arguments to the, to the extent that they exist in support of that position are also examples of speciesism and speciesist reasoning. Killing an animal, killing any sentient being, is imposing a harm on that being. The fundamental moral issue is the use of animals, not the treatment of animals. As long as we're focused on the treatment of animals, we're going to continue to be focused on humane treatment Humane treatment doesn't work, animal welfare regulation doesn't work, and it misses the fundamental moral point. The fourth component of the world is vegan, if you want it, 
is the work that we do on a daily basis in terms of creative, nonviolent, vegan education. One of the things that I want to do in the new year is expand from my iPod Nano and use my Skype system more. I actually did that last week when I had the conversation with Gary Steiner. And I want to expand that more and I want to interview people out uh, in the field, as it were, who are doing creative, nonviolent vegan education. And I'm having uh, a great deal of correspondence with many people who are doing many creative things. These are people who work anonymously. We don't know who they are. Uh, they're not, they're not uh, uh, promoting themselves or, or uh, uh, doing fundraising campaigns and whatnot. Uh, oftentimes they're using their own money. Uh, usually they're using their own money, actually. Uh, but they're doing things like tabling, uh, and providing literature. They're, they're going to schools and giving talks to, to different groups of, of, of students at different age levels. Uh, they're distributing vegan food that they're paying for uh, to homeless people. They're providing samples of vegan food at community events. Uh, they're having events at their homes in which they're serving vegan food and discussing veganism with people. There are a lot of folks doing many creative, nonviolent things to educate people about veganism. And that's the fourth component, is what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. We should never let a day go by where we don't talk to somebody about veganism. We almost always have the opportunity to engage someone. We almost always have the opportunity to engage someone to talk to them about veganism. And with the internet, we have the opportunity to engage many people in the discussion. The important point is that we have to keep clear about what the message is. The message is we've got no moral justification for using animals. Veganism is the least that we can do if we take animal interests seriously. We ought to stop all of this vegan bashing. We ought to stop looking for every excuse we can to criticize veganism or characterize it as fanatical. We ought to recognize that just as we think that the concept of humane rape or humane child molestation is a morally objectionable concept, we ought to start thinking, if we're not speciesist, that the concept of humane animal exploitation, and I'm using humane in, in quotes there because I, I, I don't believe that's even possible, but humane animal exploitation is similarly, as a theoretical matter, morally objectionable. Because the alternative is to say there's a relevant difference between humans and non-humans when it comes to use. And the answer is there isn't. There isn't a moral justification for treating any sentient being as the resource of another. So, the four components. The world is vegan if you want it. You go vegan. You support veganism as a moral baseline and you object to vegan bashing. You object to the idea that veganism is absolutism, just as you would object to the idea that humane rape is some objectionable form of absolutism. You help to change the focus of the discussion away from treatment 
and toward use and you engage as much as you can in creative nonviolent vegan education so please join us in our virtual billboard campaign the world is vegan if you want it use that slogan as a focal point for discussing the four issues that I've discussed in this commentary the notion that the world is vegan if you want it means in the first instance that you become the change you want the world to see you go vegan that we focus on veganism as a moral baseline that we reject this vegan bashing this notion that veganism is absolutism or fanatical it is simply the position that we have no business exploiting animals that exploiting animals is wrong and just as we say rape is wrong and pedophilia is wrong and it's not a question of whether you do it humanely you shouldn't be doing it at all and we would not criticize or or regard pejoratively somebody who said all rape is wrong it's not a matter of humane rape all rape is wrong we would never say that such a person is an absolutist or a fanatic we shouldn't say that about veganism to do so is simply speciesism we ought to shift the focus away from treatment and toward use. The basic issue is use. It doesn't matter how humanely we treat animals. Because animals are chattel property, animal welfare regulation is never going to do very much, but really wouldn't matter. The issue is use, not treatment. And the fourth point that each of us should every day do some creative, nonviolent vegan education, and we all have that opportunity. In our day-to-day -day lives, we're coming into contact with people. We have access to the Internet. We can come into contact with large numbers of people. So it's not a question of just one person at a time, although that's not something to be denigrated either, but it's a matter of educating people. And if we all were involved, if we all did this collectively, the educational impact would be profound. If we all spoke with one voice, would veganism happen overnight? No. Would animal exploitation cease overnight? No. But you know what? We would shift the paradigm dramatically overnight and the discussion would change. The world is vegan if we want it is a message of empowerment. We can change things if we want. If we act collectively we can change things. And it's our responsibility to do so. You can check the website for the banners that people are sending in. Obviously, people who are creating those banners, make sure that you have the rights to use any materials that you're using in making your banners. I have two points I want to make before ending this commentary. The first point is to go back to what I said initially. In this podcast. If you can adopt an animal, please do so. Adoption is very important. It's a very important part of animal rights activism. doesn't matter whether you adopt a dog, a cat, fish, rat, mouse, gerbil. doesn't matter. Adopt someone. Open your heart. Open your home. Please. Animals need homes. They're in this mess because of us. We have a responsibility. Please. Adopt someone. The second point I want to make is that on December 31st of 2009 and on January 7th of 2010 
the BBC World Service is going to be having a two-part documentary, One Planet, Animals and Us. Now, this documentary is going to be hosted by someone named Victor Schoenfeld. Victor Schoenfeld, in 1982, made a very influential film called The Animals Film. It was narrated by Julie Christie, and it was a, it was a history of the, um, the, the human-animal relationship, uh, which showed that uh, animals were, were the losers in that relationship, as it were. And, and uh, what Schoenfeld did was, uh, was to really reveal uh, what a lot of people didn't know at that time in terms of uh, the nature of animal exploitation and the human-animal relationship and the nature of, uh, of, of animal exploitation. And Schoenfeld's now returned to the subject 27 years later to see what's changed since he made his movie. And he interviewed a great many people. I was one. Uh, and he, but he interviewed many people reflecting uh, the various approaches to the problem of animal exploitation. And I don't know how it's going to turn out or what position Victor Schoenfeld's going to take. But I can tell you this. The BBC World Service is listened to by millions of people all over the world. So whatever position he takes, it's going to be a position that's going to be heard by many, many people and is going to inform their thinking about the issue. So it's very important for animal advocates to listen into this two-part documentary. You can go to the BBC World Service website and find out the time that you can listen to it uh, live or whenever it's first broadcast, and I'm sure that it will be archived, and as I understand it, there is going to be a... Uh, extended material uh, uh, site that will provide, uh, provide more material for people who are interested in the issue. But in any event, this is a big deal. And so I hope that you will, uh, that you will listen in to the uh, two-part documentary, One Planet, Animals and Us, hosted by Victor Schoenfeld on BBC World Service on December 31st and again on January 7th. It's a two-part documentary. And I will end with what I always with. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's easy. It's better for your health and for the health of the planet, but most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do. The world is vegan if you want it. Thank you for listening. Visit the site at abolitionistapproach.com or follow me on Twitter. Thank you.